Welcome to the On-Premise IT Roundtable podcast, the only show that dares to be both on topic and usually on location. Each time we meet, we bring together a group of IT luminaries to discuss a single concept or premise. In this episode, the premise is the evolution of the cloud into the hypercloud. Before we begin, quickly, let's meet who's on the panel today. My name is Adam Fisher, Cloud Architect at WWT, and you can follow me at BonzoVT on Twitter. I'm Enrique Signoretti, I'm a data storage analyst for Geekaum, and uh, you can find me by searching my name on uh, Google. Hi, I'm Glenn Deckhazer, I'm a principal architect at Equinix, and you can find me at GDeckhazer on Twitter. Hi, I'm Jim Sprinsky, and uh, I'm a technical advocate for zero defect computing. Uh, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jim the Y guy, not white guy, Y guy. And I'm Stephen Foskett, uh, organizer of Tech Field Day and publisher of Gestalt IT. And you can find me on Twitter at S Foskett. So uh, we've been talking quite a lot uh, as we get ready for Cloud Field Day this week. And one of the topics that's come up is that essentially, although there's a lot of talk about things like Web3 and everything, there's a, also an evolution happening here from uh, basically uh, cloud, public cloud providers into what I'm calling the hyper cloud, which is essentially a, a sort of a layer above the, the public cloud that allows you to abstract resources and address them and, and build on them in a uniform way and, and effectively kind of obsoletes what we've known as the cloud to this day. Um, Enrico, you know, you brought this up uh, quite a lot and quite passionately. Tell us a little bit about your perspective on this emerging hyper cloud. So yes, Stephen, what uh, is happening, I think is uh, a revolution here. I talked with a lot of end users in the last year and many of them are thinking about the hybrid cloud as the way to go. And hybrid cloud means multi-cloud. Sometimes they are doing it strategically. In other cases, it's just a, a tactical decision because they have to do it. And they want the flexibility to move stuff where they need it, so application and data. So they are looking for platforms that allow them to move uh, uh, entire environments uh, easily. And, and we saw many of these vendors now providing services or you know, similar user experience across uh, clouds and premises. One example could be Red Hat, for example. So they, last year you saw Red Hat OpenShift on uh, several flavors. Now you can have it on AWS, you can have it on other public clouds, you can have it on premises. So the application is the same and there are more and more uh, tools that uh, enable you to move the data underneath the application so that you can migrate quickly where you need your data. And you can, in this way, also uh, join the flexibility of the cloud with the cost of on-premises solution, depending on what you really need. Well, one of the, one of the things that I've seen uh, that, you know, I, first of all, I agree with Enrico, the, uh, the dynamic that we're seeing is customers wanting to use multiple services across multiple clouds because they're best in breed in different clouds and service providers. And even in a hybrid sense, you're talking about some things you want to bring back on your own equipment uh, with the new OPEX models provided by some of the OEMs now that give a cloud economical um, dynamic. So, uh, but one of the challenges, the biggest challenge to this that I think holds this dynamic back is data gravity. So while we say we can, you know, wanna, we want to quickly move 
data from place to place. Uh, the challenge is uh, network pipes and latency prevent a lot of this when that data becomes of a certain size. When you consider a service like Snowflake, the amount of data they store can't easily be moved from one cloud to another. So they tend to create data gravity at a huge scale in a specific cloud provider. So uh, this is going to, I think, hold back this dynamic of the multi-cloud uh, and well, I should say the, the hyper-cloud as we're saying here. While there are platforms like OpenShift and, and other uh, facilities that allow us to create mobility of applications and workloads across different clouds, um, that data gravity is going to hold that back because uh, those application front ends aren't going to have the performance to the back end data required to really make that possible in many cases. Um, and that's why you see some customers are still all in with one cloud provider. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and for all this talk about hybrid cloud and multi-cloud, you know, there's a lot of cutting edge stuff out there and you can see that there are a lot of vendors that are providing tools to enable this and, and kind of get to that path. But but I've also seen there's still a lot of customers out there that are just starting to dip their toes into a single cloud and, and are starting to understand, um, you know, public cloud architectures and, and what OPEX, you know, models, you know, really mean for them and their organization. So I still think while there are some maybe bleeding edge, cutting edge type of customers and applications that are out there that could take advantage of this, there's still a ton of workloads out there that are, are years away from even beginning to be capable of, of looking into a multi-cloud approach. Yeah, and that's interesting, your perspectives, my colleagues, because I'm going to be honest, I've been a nuts and bolts Oracle DBA, don't hate me, for... 20 years. And my first question with all this stuff is why the hell is everybody moving everything around everywhere to get the best of breed? You know, is, is, and I understand that aspect, Glenn, of data gravity as well, right? Because if you've got terabytes or even, you know, petabytes worth of data, why not just leave it where the hell it is and find the right tool to talk to it? And in a lot of cases, I'm going to be honest, uh, it would be a single cloud provider, wherever that might be. Why? You know, every time you move something around, there's a chance you could lose it. There's a chance somebody could sniff it. Somebody could take it. So to, from my perspective, it seems more pragmatic to concentrate on just getting to the darn cloud for now. Well, from a business perspective, the that data gravity becomes a business uh, issue. All right. Um, you as a business, you you own that data. That's your those are your crown jewels. And you cannot have the only copy of that extremely valuable resource in a third party's hands that then you, can, you can't easily get that out. Um, as then you, you lose all leverage with that vendor um, if they raise prices on you or should the service become degraded over time. We certainly had some outages this year in the cloud that have made a lot of noise. But um, I do see some customers that are keeping a copy of data adjacent to all the different cloud providers, obviously, you know, I'm able to do that. But the uh, the point being that, you know, having a copy of that data outside the cloud while keeping a copy inside a specific cloud vendor, a, a specific cloud vendor allows us to uh, to keep the customer, you know, leveraged with their data as opposed to giving it all up to, to someone else. And there's a lot of talk of data sovereignty, and that's really what it speaks to. I have to add here that uh, I only partially agree with what you said. I mean, data gravity is a problem. Now, there are a lot of 
mechanisms to cheat data gravity. So if you need to move an application, there are several replication mechanisms now that allow you to pick the you know uh, metadata first. So it's very small amount of data, and then you know what you have and start picking the necessary data remotely only when you not, don't have it locally. Why in the background there is a replication mechanism, a migration mechanism that uh, allows you to move the data. So there are mechanisms to do that. Uh, and, and of course, you know, you need the skills to manage all these, these, these things. And it's, and I agree that sometimes it's not possible. If you are thinking about multi petabyte environments, then maybe, uh, there are other kind of problems that you have, but, uh, most of the applications that we talk about, uh, especially in the Kubernetes world, which is one of the few environments that will allow uh, true application portability at the moment across different clouds, you see that most of most of these applications are stateless. And even if, when they are stateful, the amount of data that they manage is not usually huge. So it's easier for this system. And again, replication and mechanism to simplify data replication and retrieval from a remote location is now possible. So, uh, and also direct connection between clouds is now a, a possibility. So if you are, if you have a large organization and you want to connect uh, the clouds that you are using together with direct connections, uh, uh, you know, you can remove some of the issues that uh, come from moving data outside the cloud, including sometimes secret fees and and other problems uh, that comes with you know moving data across the clouds. Oh yeah, well, and with federated AI and five G coming out, you're absolutely right. I completely agree with everything you just said. Um, I, I think though that the replication technologies that you talk about, if you're not thinking about that as you enter the cloud while your data is small, right? The time to think about building that infrastructure to create that replication environment where you can do what you're talking about is, well, it's always now because it's not getting any easier later, but um, certainly in the beginning is where you really want to, uh, to do that. Um, and, and otherwise there becomes that point. And there was a paper, um, that was out there from, I think it was Andreessen Horowitz that came out with that paper called the trillion dollar cost paradox. And then it was a big, you know, pr provocative paper that was out there that uh, the, the TLDR on it was, um, you're crazy if you don't start in the cloud, you're crazier if you stay there. Right. And, and, um, it was, you know, it caused obviously, uh, and Andy Jassy felt, you know, passionate enough about this that he actually mentioned it on his on the keynote at reinvent which is you probably won't don't want to do that but uh but this concept that and, and it really does go down to data, data gravity that, that that does come to that and that um aws and and the cloud providers want you to stick all your data in there and especially with ai and ml and training data that those are big data sets they grow very fast very quickly and hit that inflection point very quick very quickly where you can't um move them very easily. So you need to have that. If you're going to have mobility for those types of data sets, you got to plan for that up front. Um, so again, once 5G starts coming out, we have user plane function offload, and we're starting to do um, inference at the edge and things like that. Um, this is all going to become much more important because uh, that's when services and best of breed come into play. And we don't have multi terabyte Oracle databases that are the center of the world. This is going to be a very decentralized I said the word decentralized um, uh, data world with all this stuff coming out. So, so Glenn, I'm glad that you mentioned services because to me, that's kind of what it comes down to here is that a lot of the cloud providers have some very compelling services 
but a lot of them are really, really proprietary. And I think that that's one of those things those of us who've been in IT for a long time have realized is that often proprietary technologies become lock-in. And even though they're compelling, even though they're valuable, they, they sort of lock you into things. Uh, whether something is uh, stored uh, directly and accessed directly from, for example, Amazon S3, or is indirectly accessed and still stored in S3, but indirectly accessed through, for example, a storage platform from, you know, Pure NetApp or, or whoever, uh, you know, is almost irrelevant in terms of the sort of cloudification of enterprise tech, but it's extremely important in terms of this discussion of the hypercloud, because one could say that building a fully replicated storage environment to support your multi-petabyte application that spans you know, on-premises as well as Amazon and Azure or something like that, that's not something that can be done without one of these overlays, one of these overlay tools. And the other thing I wanna bring up too is that in my opinion, Kubernetes is the guiding light of this hypercloud because as Enrico mentioned, this is the technology that allows us to treat the cloud as a hypercloud. This is the technology that allows us to not be Amazonified. And no amount of sort of grabbing it by Google or by Amazon is going to result in us not wanting to abstract away from the underlying infrastructure and use these advanced features. And in both of these cases, what we're talking about, whether it's storage, or uh, there's a whole new uh, networking world of, of networking products that allow you to do uh, inter-cloud networking seamlessly. Uh, there's a whole world of management and even uh, provisioning and, and all that. No matter what it is, all of these things, the unifying theme is we're moving to a layer above the cloud. And that's the hypercloud in my mind. Um, Enrico or Adam, Adam, what do you, what do you think of this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it definitely um, everything that you said makes perfect sense, and and it's headed in that direction. And but I think you know, like Jim had mentioned earlier about um, why do we need the best of breed for this? You know, everything isn't one size fits all. So it really comes down to the workload, the customer, the organization, and and so yeah, there are going to be some um, workloads out there that that can take advantage of Kubernetes and, and maybe that uh, organization runs NetApp uh, on-prem and, and has built into, uh, you know, that kind of storage ecosystem. So there, there's so many flavors and so many different types of technologies out there. Um, the capabilities to do just about anything are, are going to be available, but um, I, I really do feel like the onus is kind of on organizations to understand what does their workload really need, and then also, um, you know, how how long have you been in the cloud? How how uh, what is your maturity to understand? what our needs for things like data gravity and how those things affect the business. Uh, it, it takes time to, you know, understand that and, and figure out what that means for your workloads and your applications. Yeah, we are continuing to mention data gravity as a huge problem for these things, but uh, consider that even the uh, backup vendor, like Kasten, or they, they are developing technology to, you know, backup your Kubernetes cluster uh, and then uh, provide disaster recovery and data migration. So you can you can start today backing up your your uh, Kubernetes cluster in whatever environment you have, and tomorrow you can recover it in another in another um, system. Okay, and uh, and there are incremental backups, and there are uh, potentially in the future incremental restores because the disaster recovery 
uh, option that they provide. So I don't think uh, we are far from it. I mean, so if you have the same storage layer, for example, and you want to move your uh, entire environment, you don't do it automatically in, uh, in a few seconds, but if you plan for a migration, you can do it. So the, whatever, if tomorrow JKE will cost you a fraction of uh, Amazon EKS or, and I really struggle with these acronyms all the time, but, but uh, the, the idea here is that whatever is your acronym of choice for the week or for the month or for the year, you can really have a different power against uh, uh, the cloud providers. I don't, I don't see a lot of uh, cost arbitrage across like that uh, as being a major factor. I think a lot of it has to do with blast radius, right? I think it ha a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, specific services that you might like in a specific cloud vendor. Um, a lot of it is um, emotional. Some, you know, sometimes you get new people coming in that like vendor X instead of vendor Y. Uh, but it, it's a lot more complex to for this hyper cloud idea. It, it, data gravity is one dimension uh, that, that I think will hold it back. But also keep in mind that with all this interconnectivity uh, that is required to make that work, uh, you know, a, the security models are different across every cloud vendor. So it's not like you can really make that homogenous across all easily. Um, even if you're using third party stuff meant for the physical world that's been virtualized that they made a cloud version of, it, that's just not the right way to do it, right? And so uh, there's still some time to get there. There, there are vendors like, I'll, 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 I'll use IBM as an example. They have something called Cloud Satellite, which is homogenized. It provides a managed OpenShift environment. Uh, today it's OpenShift. It's, it's supposed to be like outpost-like, you know, but it's a, it's a bit different. And uh, their goal is to kind of manage OpenShift clusters no matter where it is, whether it's in AWS, Azure, on-prem at the edge, and to homogenize it. So it's their effort to do this. Um, but there's a management cost on top of that, and there's you know there's a connectivity that you still have to pay for from somebody. And uh, it's challenging. To, to It's never going to be as simple as anyone makes it sound. As soon as any vendor uses the word just, start to be very careful about what the next part of that sentence is going to say because nothing in, in the hyper cloud is ever just going to happen i agree with uh, with what you say the the difference here is probably the fact that this is why we need this abstraction layer so and uh, and also i agree with the costs additional costs but if we take into account all the costs about the application so providing the server the service on top of the applications then you you probably will find out that you know the infrastructure part of the uh, of the cost the total cost of this application is not you know the, the infrastructure is still minimal and uh, so in the end uh, i think uh, adding an additional layer of abstraction and having the same identical services across all the clouds it's not for today i agree but look at what happens you know we mentioned red hat vmware as you know, his services and products on every cloud. NetApp is building a similar platform. Uh, Pure Storage is more or less doing the same. Uh, yeah, actually, they also have database services on top of their platform, etc., etc. So th there are several vendors moving all in this direction. So they, all of them are non-cloud providers. But I think that doesn't change much in the end. I mean, they are building or they are trying to build this abstraction yeah and again to play a little bit of devil's advocate you know 
I agree with you guys 100%. It's a lot of organizations simply don't look up front at the costs for egress. You know, it's really easy, as you guys know, get your stuff in there, get it out on AWS. Well, that costs virtually nothing. And then, oh, you're pulling a terabyte every hour. Oh, well, that's going to cost you a small fortune. Well, that's in the EULA, if you will, right? And how many people, last time I read a EULA, I don't remember, right? But again, organizations seem to be rushing in my mind. And, you know, I do a lot of stuff with people doing AI and machine learning and deep learning and stuff like this. And there seems to be this rush, go use the perfect tool and oh, Neo4j for this and this for that and this for that. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. There, it's almost like we need some boomer, uh, you know, to go, okay, folks, why are we doing this? And just ask that question slowly. And secondly, not to be maybe so afraid of vendor lock-in if it's the right vendor, as long as you know your costs are under control and it's fast enough. I, I, it just seems to me like people are in a hurry to be in a hurry on some of this stuff. That's just my perspective, maybe being down in the trenches. Yeah, and I also wonder, you know, about the elephant in the room of the the big cloud providers themselves. I mean, there doesn't really seem to be any incentive for them to, uh, you know, want to build in any kind of multi-cloud connectivity and and build, you know, be capable of allowing those layers of abstraction that might make that easier. So, at what point are we going to see some? pushback to to force some of that uh you know uh single cloud mindset and and make it even harder where there is going to be maybe some some uh play between the the vendors that are trying to enable something like this and the cloud providers who see that as something that's taking a piece of their pie i mean i do wonder if at some point that leaves open the the possibility for um the the potential for you know public cloud to be something more along the lines of uh, just truly commoditized hardware where you've got these regions and you can spin up whatever you want. And it's less about the services, but more about just the, the capabilities to do what you need to do um, with, without building your own data center. Well, yeah, you've got lots of vendors doing bare metal, right? So um, there, there's that. But, um, you know, Going back to your point, though, of the different cloud providers connecting to each other, that is actually starting to happen. We still do see some, you know, Azure and AWS and Google connectivity from from one to the other. The actual cloud providers are starting to work with each other. Um, I, I would posit that as a customer, I don't want that. How do you secure that link? How do you monitor and manage that link? It's not your link. It's not your physical link. So how, you can't you can't put any sort of um, you know promiscuous mode, you know, uh, visibility on that link. So do I really want to allow clouds to talk to each other when I can't see that data? Um, I really want to have that stuff going over links that I control. Uh, and so, um, you know, and, and also just from management, try to try to draw the map, the network map where you have all the cloud providers talking to each other and you're a multi-cloud customer. Um, that to me is it, it becomes completely unmanageable. So um, not that, you know, a complete hub and spoke uh, architecture is indicated, but certainly regional multi-cloud pivot points are probably going to happen if this is if the hyper cloud is going to take off that's probably what that architecture is going to look like do see a little bit of that already so adam mentioned the elephant in the room which is the public cloud providers but i want to mention uh, the elephant in the data center which is vmware and uh, one could argue compellingly that vmware's efforts in public cloud you know basically vm vmware on aws and so on 
are the hypercloud for the per, you know perspective of enterprises. Now, one could also argue that a virtualization centric, if not virtualization based strategy is a little uh, old school and a little less cloudy, but to be honest, uh, things are only as useful as they're useful. And if companies are able to benefit from VMware on AWS, and if they're able to build a hyper cloud, whether it's on-premises, you know, extending out into public cloud, extending across multiple public cloud providers using VMware, uh, what's your problem, folks? Uh, is VMware the uh, the hyper cloud provider? I think they're going to become more of one now with the OpEx capabilities from the major OEMs because before, you know, if your unit of measure is the VM, you know, the VMs were originally created to make the most use out of the CPUs you owned. It was an efficiency play. Um, then it became a little bit of a mobility play. The disaster recovery, uh, you know, ramifications became clear. And wow, look at all the stuff you can do. But if you're doing VMs and your unit of measure is a VM and that you're using cloud, you're doing it wrong because, you know, they're eating you alive on cost and it's stuff that's up 24 by seven. That stuff is, that's not what cloud is for. So to get those, uh, those VMs out into an infrastructure that is, you know, elastic, but not as elastic as say something you need for containerization uh, is really key. And up till now, VMware on AWS and, and later Azure VMware services were really the only thing you could do. I mean, GCP has got one too, but, um, now customers can get that economical model in, you know, something that feels more like they own it, um, almost feels like a lease, but it's not. And, and it's still up and down. You know, you can go up and down with it uh, from a capacity perspective. And it's not in the cloud. You don't have to pay that upcharge to AWS or Azure for that additional management layer. And again, be captive within their walls. You can have it in between, which is a private cloud, still part of the hyper cloud. So, uh, that's that's what we think is going to be going forward um, as we see that yeah. hyper cloud stuff going I forward. have only two others. And uh, still thinking about VMware as a virtualization-only company, it's not it reductive. I mean, Tanzu, all the uh, products that they launched last year around, you know, development process, CICD integration and, and stuff. I mean, yes, maybe many of them as have a you know a point of view that is more infrastructure like than uh, the latest devopish things but uh, i mean they they have a very compelling portfolio and thinking about them as virtualization company is very very reductive or legacy i mean uh, but yeah but... i i i agree with you enrico in that sense that um you know i can see the the vmware public cloud ecosystem being uh sort of the de facto uh multi-cloud uh hyper cloud for virtual machines and and that's a you know specific type of workload that certainly is still out there but i i would probably argue and maybe i'm wrong about this but that any new applications new workloads that are being created and developed today are probably not going to be vm centric that doesn't mean that there still isn't a lot of VM related workloads out there. And, and so, you know, there still is a big chunk of that, but moving forward, any new applications are going to be more public cloud uh, DevOps-ish, as Enrico said, kind of kind of centric. So there certainly is uh, the, the ability for that, that VMware um, 
uh, mega hybrid cloud, uh, multi-cloud uh, infrastructure out there, but it'll definitely be interesting to see how they play into that that cloud native um, Kubernetes, uh, more modern architecture. Uh, uh, everything is kind of geared towards that moving forward. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, well, I'll just point out, like as Enrico pointed out, uh, Tanzu is GA, and it is really DevOps and Kubernetes folk. I mean, it is Kubernetes. I mean, it, it really is not a uh, VM-centric approach. But you're right, though, that fundamentally, anything built on vSphere is going to have a bit of a uh, VM flavor because that's what it was built for. You know, I mean, if if you if you put a battery pack in a you know 57 Chevy. It's still a 57 Chevy, even though now it's electric. And, um, and that doesn't mean that it's a bad electric car. It just means that it's still what it was. And VMware will always have that heritage, even though they're obviously moving way forward with Kubernetes. So I want to give everybody a chance just quickly to wrap up here. Um, what do you think? Is HyperCloud the future of the cloud? Or are we off base? And I'm just going to call on y'all. Uh, Jim, I'm going to call on you first. What do you think? I think that's definitely the direction we're headed, um, especially with uh, the robustness of the clouds, uh, the ability for people to pick, as I think Glenn and Enrico pointed out, okay, I need the right database, I need the right application server, I need the right uh, platform to handle Kubernetes for my uh, DevOps demands. So yeah, it's definitely going to happen. Glenn, uh, HyperCloud? We're definitely getting there. I don't think we're ever going to get to the point where we'll have one control plane to rule them all, but the direction is going there. All right. Uh, Enrico? Of course, it will take some time, and uh, there will be a lot of uh, mistakes that these vendors will do during their journey to provide a, a structure, uh, this hypercloud, but I think that in the end, uh, it, will be, it will be there. And finally, Adam. Yeah, so I agree with uh, my colleagues here, and I I think it's going to mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But I'm interested to see what uh, pivots in technology and public cloud happen in the next few years that that might change my answer down the road. Well, thank you everybody for your uh, your opinions and uh, your controversial takes on some of this stuff. I really look forward to hearing what you have to say at Cloud Field Day tomorrow, uh, Thursday, and Friday as we discuss the uh, evolution of the cloud. Uh, and folks can watch that at techfieldday.com. Uh, but as for you, uh, where can people connect with you? And uh, is there something that, you wanna, that you're particularly proud of right now, Jim? Oh, follow me on Twitter, Jim the Y guy. I always have something interesting or a joke or some humor. Glenn? Uh, like Jim, you can follow me on Twitter, gdeckhazer, and um, you can keep your eye on uh, the Equinix Interconnections blog, where uh, I hope to have some content up there over the next month. Cool. Enrico? Again, you can find me on gigam.com or on eSignoretian on Twitter, or eSignoretti, like Italians say. And, uh, and that's it. And Adam? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at BonzoVT and my blog at virtualbonzo.com. 
And as for me, uh, you can find me on Twitter at sfoskett, on LinkedIn, and of course at techfieldday.com, where you'll be able to see the Cloud Field Day event tomorrow, Thursday, and Friday, as well as recordings of previous Cloud Field Day uh, events with uh, discussions like the folks you see on this podcast. Also, you'll be able to see the live stream of that on LinkedIn if you go to the Tech Field Day page there. So thanks for listening to the On-Premise IT Roundtable podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please do subscribe in your favorite podcast application and uh, give us a rating and review there too. This podcast is brought to you by gestaltit.com, your home for IT coverage from across the enterprise. For show notes and more episodes, go to gestaltit.com slash podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.